Well, it's good to see everybody. Happy Valentine's Day to you tonight. Well, he got important people in the house tonight. I didn't think we had told Judy. I said there won't be a dozen people there tonight. Valentine's Day. This is why we sometimes suspend church at holiday times or on spring break weeks. But uh, we got a good group here tonight for uh, a Valentine's Day night. And uh, I don't know about you, but the Marines for Jesus come to church on Valentine's night. People ask me, my mother said, what are y'all doing for Valentine's Day? I said, I'm going to take Judy to church for dinner. (laughs) And she said, well, that's great, and that's fine, but you'd better take that girl out tomorrow night, which I will. And I guarantee you, uh, wherever we go tomorrow night, it'll cost a whole lot more than Hillcrest charge tonight. I can assure you of that. I'd like to say happy Valentine's Day to my beloved bride. Uh, it was our first Valentine's date was 35 years ago tonight. We started dating when I was 19 years young. In fact, <clears throat> our first date was on my 19th birthday. I called her up and gave her the biggest sob story that I didn't have anything to do on my birthday. And uh, she, she somehow swallowed that. I could have come up with a lot of things to do on my birthday, but I wanted to spend it with her. And she spent it with me, and we went to Old Charlie's Restaurant right across the street from the southern uh, section of the Vanderbilt University campus where I was a student. And then I took her to see the Amityville Horror at the movie. (laughs) It was true. Not knowing that she hated horror movies. I thought everybody went to horror movies. When I was a kid, you went to Halloween and, you know, all of those movies. That's just what you did in the early 1980s. And uh, when it was all said and done, I knew I had made a major mistake. (laughs) I was visiting with George Newman in his hospital room last night. And the, the man, when I went to see him last night, I'd never heard the man talk so much in my life in the 13 years that I've known him, which was, I think, a good sign. And he was saying, I said, what happened? He said, preacher, I heard that truck coming down the street, and I remembered I hadn't taken the recycle bin out to the road. And I ran out the house and pushed that thing as fast as I could to the road. And he said, as soon as I got it out there, I knew I had made the biggest mistake of my life. And when I got back to the house, I told first thing out of my mouth, Susie, call the ambulance. I've overdone it. Well, that's the way I felt after the Amityville horror. (laughs) I knew I had made a big mistake. And I went home that night, and I told my my mother, said, how did it go? I said, it couldn't have gone any worse. (laughs) I think I'm one and done with Judy Wright. And thanks be unto God, uh, the next day. You know what I did the second date? took her to Swenson's Ice Cream Shop. I played it real safe. We went after church and got an ice cream cone. And here we are still 35 years later. Happy Valentine's Day, honey. Love you much. Take your Bible. How about 1 Corinthians 13 tonight? Let's take a break from Noah on Valentine's Day. Noah spent 40 days and 40 nights in the ark. I believe we can leave him in there another seven days, don't you? And we'll come back next week. I just didn't want to talk about judgment on Valentine's Day. And so let's come to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm just going to look at the first three verses tonight. 
Uh, speaking of waxing nostalgic, some of you remember the songwriter Burt Backrack. A lot of popular artists uh, recorded Burt Backrack songs in the 1960s and <clears throat> early 1970s. Probably his most familiar song had to do with the subject of love. You remember, don't you? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Remember the lyrics? It's the only thing. There it is right there. Turn it up a little bit. It's the only thing. Just too little love. Keep playing. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. Not just for one, but for everyone. You can kill it now. Thank you, Bruce. The words of that song are very biblical if you caught it. No, not just for one, but for everyone. That's a very biblical statement that could be substantiated from many places in the Bible. And most especially, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of those rare chapters that have its own nickname in the Bible. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is, of course, the love chapter. And it's the most expansive statement, the single most important statement about love that you find anywhere in the Bible. <clears throat> These are very familiar words. You hear them at weddings all the time, even though I'm pretty sure that weddings were the last thing on Paul's mind when he's writing 1 Corinthians 13. He writes this within the context of disunity and disharmony in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthian church, of course, couldn't get along. They had many disagreements. There was great disharmony. There were political factions, envy, rivalries, disagreements about spiritual gifts. And that's very important that you remember that context when you're properly interpreting 1 Corinthians 13. It comes between, of course, 1 Corinthians 12 on the one side and 1 Corinthians 14 on the other, both of which have to do with spiritual gifts and certain abuses of spiritual gifts that were causing fractiousness in the early Corinthian church. And right in the middle of this very detailed statement about spiritual gifts and the appropriate use of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, Paul gives us this statement which basically helps us to understand how spiritual gifts are to be ministered to one another within the body of Christ. They're to be ministered not out of selfish ambition, but with others at the forefront of our motivation. They're to be ministered in love. And here's what he says. Having concluded chapter 12 by, by saying these words, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And here's what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. If I speak <clears throat> in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then, of course, jumping down to the very end of the chapter, verse 13, Paul concludes with the very poetic statement, so now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Love is one of those concepts that's often very hard to articulate and difficult sometimes to define. If you ask people to define love, you, you get responses that were basically all over the map. A little boy one time defined love as when your dad reads you a bedtime story and doesn't fall asleep before he finishes the book, which is a great definition of love in one sense. Uh, however we define it, <clears throat> I think that we would all agree, those of us that have read Scripture, that love is primary in the Christian life. Paul sets up the discussion of 1 Corinthians 13 by defining it as the most excellent way, and then he concludes the chapter by calling it the greatest of these. And so those two statements form the bookend of what is to be tantamount in terms of reflecting the heart of Christ, looking like Christ, becoming like Christ, living and ministering like Christ in the world today through the church, and that is love. Now, the question is, why is it such a big deal? Well, love's a big deal for a lot of different reasons, but I think principally because it best represents who God is. The Bible says in 1 John, God is what? I mean, so at the very core of God's being is love. So it represents who God is. It represents how God acts, certainly when it comes to redeeming lost sinners who are as far away from God as can possibly be. Love represents the identity of God. It represents the motivation of God. If you want to know the heart of God's love, you look at the cross, right, and what God accomplished in Christ on the cross, the word, of course, love is used here and throughout 1 Corinthians 13, and it is the word agape. Very important word. It's a word that the New Testament writers basically had to coin. It was used before the Greek New Testament, but not very frequently and certainly not in the same way that the biblical writers use it. Agape, of course, over and against phileo, which is the other primary word for love, in the Bible, and often they're used interchangeably in the New Testament, but agape is a special word, and the reason it's special is because it's descriptive of the kind of love that God has for us. It's a love that's given to others without uh, thought or regard as to the kind of person that you're giving it to. It's an unconditional love. Most of the time when we talk about love, we're talking about something that's reciprocal, something that's emotional, something that's a feeling. And I've said before, we've allowed the popular culture to help define love in the 20th century. Our understanding of love has been fashioned and um, described and understood more based on what's been written by people like the Beatles and Elvis and the Rolling Stones than by what's come out of the Bible. Elvis used to have a song about being all shook up. My hands are shaking, my knees are weak, and I can't seem to stand on my own two feet. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Well, that has a whole lot more to do with hormones than it does to do with biblical love. Uh, that has nothing to do with biblical love. Biblical love is the kind of love that God has on you, a lost, vile, unregenerate, reprobate sinner. He loves you in spite of who you are. You nor I gave him love in return. God doesn't love us because we lo first loved him. We love him because he first loved us. 
And he loved us not because of who we were, but in spite of who we were. And God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape. And it's something that we know very little about. It is a verb. It is something we choose to do. It is something that we set on another person without regard to the kind of person the other person really is. I make a decision to love you in spite of the fact you may be very hard to love. Would you agree with me tonight that not everybody's easy to love? There are some people, it's hard to love them. <clears throat> and I'm convinced you can love somebody that you don't really like. Because there are a lot of people we may not like. We may not run in relational circles with them. We may not go out to dinner with them. We may never invite them out to dinner because we just don't connect with them. But we can still love them. We can still serve them. We can still be there for them in a time of need. We can still see them through the lens of the gospel and respond to needs in their life as Christ has responded to needs in our life even though we haven't done anything to deserve it. This is the kind of love that God expects us to show everybody indiscriminately, regardless of whether you get any back. And most of the time, we're only willing to love people who will love us in return the way we feel like we need to be loved in return. And yet that has nothing to do with biblical love. 16 times in the New Testament, you run across this phrase. 16 times between Matthew and Revelation, love one another. And that comes to us in the form of an imperative. It's a command. And this is one reason you know that love is not a feeling principally because you can't command a feeling. You know, my parents, when we would pitch fits as, a, as little kids, uh, both mother and daddy used to say it. You better get happy. You better get happy. You better get happy right now. Well, you can't command somebody to get happy with tears running down their face. That's an emotion. In fact, I'm convinced that only makes it worse, right? That only made me scream louder. No, you can't command an emotion. When God says love one another, it's something that you can do even though you may not feel it. It's a volitional act of the will where you set your love intentionally on another person even when you don't always feel it and even when they're sometimes not always lovable. Now, with all that in mind, Let's see what this passage teaches about the priority of love, the central truth that nothing is more significant to God than a believer's love life. The greatest of these is love. Why is that true? Well, there are four reasons I'm going to give you tonight if you want to jot them down. The first is this. Without love, the Bible says what, nothing you say really matters. Without love. I suppose that cultures all across the world at all time have been impressed by great speakers. We're attracted to people who communicate well, who can articulate forcefully, captivate our attention. And that's always been the case. We admire people who have a command of language. In the ancient world, the Greeks admired Demosthenes. Demosthenes was one of the great speakers during the great Roman era. It's written of Demosthenes that he could move a crowd like none other. He moved people, it's written of him, like the wind moves sheaves of grain in a wheat field. In modern times, we think of, or more modern times, we think of men like Patrick Henry, give me liberty. It's the greatest speech ever in American history, perhaps. Give me liberty or give me death. I mean, he commanded the Virginia House of Burgesses in his time there. 
Men like Daniel Webster and William Jennings Bryan and Theodore Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy and the like. Kennedy was one of the most compelling speakers that I've ever heard. And the, we admire these people who are able to command a crowd and command language and know how to arrest the attention of others with their words. I remember when <clears throat> President Clinton was impeached, his trial went to the United States Senate. And what did the president's defense team do when everything was on the line? The House had impeached him. It went to the U.S. Senate for trial. And he was on trial there. And when it came down to the 11th hour, right before they took the vote, what did the president's defense team do? They turned to a great speaker. His name was Senator Dale Bumpers of the great state of Arkansas, where Mr. Clinton was from. Judy and I were at Big Cedar Lodge on a little getaway. And as she was getting ready for how we were going to spend our day, she was in the bathroom getting ready, and I'd already gotten ready, and I was fixed to the live broadcast of the Clinton trial from the U.S. Senate. And then here comes Dale Bumpers, a great senator from Arkansas, an attorney, tall, sophisticated, urbane, dressed in a navy blue suit with a striped tie, gray hair, flowing in a pompadour, coming back. And I mean, he took the stage, not a note. He walked around, never referenced the first note. And he commanded the attention of the people there. And he had my attention from start to finish. Judy came out, was ready to go. I said, we got to wait till this guy's finished. I was shushing her at the time on our getaway to the cabin. And I couldn't move away from the, pretty soon she got enraptured in what he was doing and, and the president ended up quitting. And I am convinced that a big part of that was the oratorical skills of Senator Bumper. See, we admire that. These are traits that we tend to admire, eloquence, charisma. We love somebody who knows what to say and who says it in such a way that it moves our hearts and stirs us to action. And yet, God says right here in 1 Corinthians 13, that there's a whole lot more to life than what you say and how you say it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not what? Love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's Paul's way of saying eloquence minus love equals a big goose egg. It equals nothing. And in much of this letter, of course, Paul's dealing with all these abuses in the church at Corinth. And remember, among those abuses were these abuses of spiritual gifts. The gift of tongues, chief among them, right? All, much of the last part of 1 Corinthians 12 and virtually all of 1 Corinthians 14 deals with the spiritual gift of tongues, and the misappropriation and misuse of the spiritual gift of tongues. Everybody's all enamored about tongues in the church of Jesus Christ, and they have been forever. And let me just say, tongues are basically mentioned only in a couple of passages in the New Testament. And whenever Paul mentions them, and he mentions spiritual gifts in four passages, but in Corinthians, the only place that he mentions them. And the reason he brings it up to the Corinthians, I think, is because they were abusing it. It's a corrective direction. It's always amazed me that when Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he gets to the spiritual gift sections in Romans chapter 12, 
He only lists seven spiritual gifts, and tongues is nowhere to be found in the book of Romans. Now, don't you think if it were that big of a deal, and Paul is writing to the church in the most important city in the world, if he believed every believer was to have the gift of tongues, or even if he believed that tongues were to have a major place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you think he would have brought it up to them? He didn't mention it to them, didn't mention it in his spiritual gifts passage in Ephesians. Peter doesn't mention it in 1 Peter 4 when he begins to teach about spiritual gifts, not a word about tongues. It's only here in Corinthians and in a corrective sense. And yet, Paul says, you all are making such a big deal about tongues. Everybody wants a gift of tongues. And you want it devoid of love. You care nothing about ministering to others with the gift of tongues. You're only concerned about how others look at you because you have the gift or think you have the gift. And that's why he injects, after bringing up the subject of tongues at the end of chapter 12, that's why he now takes off on love. Because he isn't seeing any of that coming out of the Corinthian believers. They're all saying, look at me. God has given me the gift of tongues. And maybe, just maybe, one of these days, you'll be as spiritually astute as I am. And maybe God will bless you with it. But you're not there yet. You keep praying, keep trying. One of these days, you'll be where I am. That's basically what was going on. And Paul says, you know what? I don't care what comes out of your mouth. I care what's in your heart. For if you speak with the tongues of men and angels, a language that people can't even understand, but you don't have love, it's just a bunch of what? Just a bunch of noise. That's all in the world. It is noise pollution. He uses the phrase noisy gong here, literally resounding bronze or resounding brass. The idea there resounding is noise that verberates. You know, you can slam a door and it's pow, and then the noise stops. But a resounding noise is a noise that echoes and it keeps going, right? As with a gong. Some of y'all are old enough in here tonight to remember the gong show. Who remembers the gong show? Chuck Barris? Man, I was addicted to that show growing up. And some of those guys would get on there, and they wanted the gong to be slammed. The gong was behind the judges, and if the act was bad enough, the judge, would one of them would pick up the mallet and hit that gong. And it's just a clattering racket. It's like a cymbal. Or, he says it here, a clanging cymbal. In Paul's day, cymbals were used in pagan religious ceremonies. You could go to the temple of Diana at Ephesus, for example, and they would have cymbals that they would clang together. When you clang cymbals together, the noise lingers. And if it lingers too long, you just want to say, shut up already, Right? And that's what Paul's saying here, man. You can have angelic language or you can have eloquent human language. You can move people like the wind moves grain in a wheat field. But apart from ministering that gift in love, you're nothing but resounding, echoing, terminal, interminal noise. It means nothing. So this is the first point. 
The very best of speech on earth is nothing but noise without love. Everybody with me? So without love, nothing you say really matters. Secondly, without love, nothing you know really matters. We live in a time when knowledge is just exploding, man. I'm told now that knowledge, it used to take a long time for knowledge to reproduce or to double. I'm told that the knowledge base doubles about every six years now, and that figure is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We're smarter than we've ever been before, at least on paper. We don't make good decisions as we used to, I don't think, but we've got more information at our disposal than we ever have before. Uh, and yet we're dealing with same old problems we've always dealt with. All this knowledge at our fingertips. You know, Google anything and get an answer just like that. I did that today in some message preparation I was working on. I thought, well, I wonder about this. Man, there was a time you'd have to go to the library. You'd have to pull cards out and then go to find it in the stacks somewhere. It would take forever to research stuff. Now, seconds, boom, Type it in Google. Here you have this whole list of research documentation right there at your fingertips. You don't even need to go to the library anymore. You can go to the library in the living room of your house. Oxford University in England, you can access their library. Unbelievable. And yet we're still making the same stupid decisions we've always made. We're still fighting with one another. There's still wars and rumors of wars, terrorism at all-time high, shootings, Today in a school, I live just north of Tate High School and there were a billion police cars down there the other day when someone saw a strange person walking around. Unbelievable. And you know why? Because the world doesn't need any more knowledge. The world needs a lot more love. A lot more love. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. <clears throat> now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul's going to mention three spiritual gifts. He thought he's Really, he mentions four in these three verses. He's mentioned, already mentioned tongues. Now he's going to mention the gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of faith. He says, and, and without, without love, none of them really matter. So he says, first of all, if I have prophetic powers. Now, you know prophecy is the counter to tongues. And everything Paul says negative about tongues in 1 Corinthians, he says positive about prophecy, which is a word of truth. Prophecy is what I'm doing here tonight. I'm giving a prophetic word from what God has already said. I'm speaking truth from God's word. That's biblical prophecy. Doesn't have a predictive element to it, though it certainly does as it's used by the Old Testament prophets and by many in the New Testament period. But fundamentally, prophecy is just a word of truth from God. We prophesy today from God's completed word. And yet, as wonderful a gift, it's always mentioned first in Paul's lists of spiritual gifts. Prophecy is always listed first. Because he always considered that the most important gift for a healthy, growing church. That's what you got to have. Church can't grow without the gift of truth speaking. It's impossible. So as important as it is, bringing the message through the Holy Spirit to the people of God, apart from love, it doesn't matter to God. That's a word to me. 
Because if I get up in the pulpit Wednesday night, Sunday morning, whenever, and even though I may have studied really hard and tried to be real creative and tried to deliver a message to God's people, even though what I say may be true, if I'm doing it for self-serving reasons, if I'm doing it to get you to like me, if I'm doing it to get a bigger church to call me, then it doesn't matter to God. Those are all wrong motivations because they're not motivations that are rooted in a heart for the love of the people. That's what's primary. Honor God and love the people. And so prophecy doesn't matter to God if it's not ministered in love. Think of Jonah, for example. You remember the story of Jonah? Did Jonah love the Ninevites? Jonah hated the Ninevites. God had called him to preach the message of repentance to the Ninevites. Go. In fact, God, this is what every preacher wants. He wants God to show up and say, hey, let me just hand you the message. Here's what I want you to tell the people, and I've already written it down for you. Wouldn't that be great? Save me a lot of time during the week. And God does that to Jonah. Here's what you to say. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Just preach a message of repentance. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. He didn't want to do it. He tried to run the other way. He finally is arrested by God. He gets the picture after spending three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. He didn't like smelling like fish guts. And so he finally decides to go the other way and obey God, even though he's a racist to the core. He hated the Ninevites. He didn't want God to bless them with the grace of repentance unto eternal life. He wanted God to judge them to hell. And yet he obeyed God and he preached. But God didn't give him any gold stars. Because even though he got the message right, he never had the right attitude toward those people. So I may have the gift of prophecy, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And then he speaks of the gift of knowledge. And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that's a reference to both divine knowledge, even if I have the mind of Christ. And even if I've memorized the Encyclopedia Britannica, I have all divine knowledge, I have all human knowledge, but have not love. Paul says, Knowledge without love is hypocritical at best. See, this is the problem right here, this business about having knowledge but not having love. Who did Jesus have real problems with in his three-year ministry? Who's that remind you of? The Pharisees. That's right. Very good. This was the problem he had with the Pharisees. These guys knew it. They knew the Old Testament law. But they had hard, stony hearts, man. They didn't have a heart of love. And Jesus called them out <clears throat> multiple times because of it. So brilliance, great biblical knowledge is absolute emptiness without love. All the knowledge in the world. Listen, this, this is a challenge in a lot of churches because we got a lot of people Man, and they know, I'm amazed. I mean, we've got, we really do, from a, from a knowledge standpoint, Hillcrest a healthy church. I mean, I get tickled. I'll call out, you know, fill in the blank kind of thing. And I get all, psh, here come the answers, you know, back at me before I can even get it out of my mouth, right? And a lot of churches are like that. A lot of us know the Bible. The question is not how much of the Bible we know, but the question is, 
How much do we really love people so that we minister the Bible as it's intended to be ministered? See, that's really what's at play. The guy's not impressed with how much we know if we don't love people. So the th- it's all about loving others as God has loved us. Y'all still with me? Amen? On Valentine's night. Thirdly, without love, nothing you believe really matters. Now, this may be the most outrageous thing that I'll say tonight, but that's the import of 1 Corinthians 13. Again, notice verse 2. If I have all what? Say it out loud. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains. I mean, this is miracle-working faith. This isn't just baby faith. If I have all faith so as to even remove a mountain, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. So, just as there are those with great skills in human language, and just as those, uh, there are those with the great gifts of prophecy and great insight and wisdom and knowledge, there are those who have a great gift of faith, even miracle-working faith. And yet, as important as faith is, even if a person has a prayerful trust in the Lord, If that person hasn't learned how to love others, the Bible says he amounts to a big fat goose egg in the eyes of the Lord. And the reason that's true is because genuine faith always produces. I'm going to preach about this subject in our Don't Waste Your Life series on Sunday. I'm going to have one more message about love. Because I believe that love is a genuine test of faith. I don't want to preach that message here tonight because we don't have time for it. But love is one of the acid tests of faith. How do I know that I'm a genuine believer? Well, you know, it's not only about what you believe about the Bible and what you believe about God. One way you know you're a genuine believer is about how you relate to other people. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Boom. Boom. So you can't say you love God if you don't love people. If I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, the Bible does teach without faith it is impossible to please God. That's true. But again, faith by itself doesn't impress God because it could be a false faith. A genuine faith loves God And loves others. Jesus said those were the two most important commandments, right? You remember when he was asked? Teacher, tell us what's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. He didn't say a word about faith. Love the Lord your God. Faith is a part of that, but he uses the word love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, they only ask him to name the greatest commandment. Jesus said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you number two for no extra charge. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So both the great, Jesus said the whole Old Testament is summarized in those two statements. You want to know what's really important about the Old Covenant of God? People want to say, oh, the Old Testament is so hard. Jesus said it actually could be boiled down to two things. Love God, love others. Because apart from that, nothing else really matters. You say, well, wait a minute. I believe in Jesus. So does the devil. Even the demons believe. Isn't that what the Bible says in James 4? Even the demons believe 
Listen, there's not a devil roaming around today that doesn't believe Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, rose again. They know all of that. It just hadn't transformed them. They had eternally hardened to it. And so it's very important to understand that believing in the right things, man, you can believe in the right things, still not be saved. You can have a head knowledge, but not a heart transformation. So the issue is not so much do you believe in God. The issue is whether or not your faith in God has resulted in a transformed heart that loves God and loves others. Look at 1 John 4, 8. Anyone, I mentioned this a moment ago, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a what? Say it out loud. He's a liar. That's strong language right there. So, I mean, John, <laughs> John's, John's going to tell it like it is, right? Without love, nothing you believe or say you believe really matters. Y'all still with me? Y'all got one more in you tonight on Valentine's night? I'm telling you, I'm getting finished. My date, we're going to get, a, we're going to get ice cream tonight. Somebody say amen. And so... You know, do something before you go home. Make, turn it into a date, guys. Ladies, make him take you somewhere and do something. I mean, to me, ice cream is the most romantic thing a guy can do with a woman. I'm just telling you. Anyway, I digress. Let me give you one last thing. And that is that without love, nothing you give really matters. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Giving is important. It has been said, and it is true, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. So true love always involves a generous spirit. True love is always giving. But the Bible says here that you can actually be a giver. And yet if it's done with the wrong motive, all of that giving, all of that sacrifice is just wasted effort. Because giving is not necessarily loving. You can give with selfish motives. Uh, a lot of people give out of guilt. I feel guilty because of how I've operated in the past and therefore I'm going to give. It has very little to do with another person. It has to do making yourself feel better. What's well, the wrong motive for giving? Uh, you can give in order to manipulate or control others, right? Listen, that's happened in churches through the years where somebody will come up and say, hey, listen, if we can do this and if we can do this my way, I'll give $10,000 for it, but it's got to be done this way. And I, well, we don't really want to do it that way. And they get up and walk out the door, right? It's manipulative giving. Or you can give to get notoriety. You want your name etched in the marble stone. And if it doesn't get etched in the marble stone, then you're not going to give it. Well, that's the wrong motive. There are all kinds of wrong motives. And from God's perspective, none of it really counts because it wasn't done out of love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. You remember that? 
When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, give in secret. Let, just let God know it. Just be content with God knowing it. Because Jesus said, if you do, if you do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's exactly what it says right there. See, that again, that was the motivation of the Pharisees. You remember, the Pharisees would go down to the temple, and they would take their coins, and there would be this big receptacle pot there, and they would throw it in there so as to make the loudest clatter possible so that everybody passing by would look back when they would hear the noise and say, oh, there goes a holy man of God. Look how much change he's throwing into the pot for the Lord's work today. Well, they wanted everybody. They said they stand there in their flowing robes with their tassels at the bottom, looking all holier than thou, so to speak, and clattering their money there for everybody to hear, and it just drove the Lord crazy. And that's why he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is. Just give to the Lord. Just let God see what you're giving and know what you're giving. Be content from the reward that your father. See, Jesus said, if you're giving for the applause of men, then you might get the applause of men. But here's the thing. That will be your reward. Don't expect one from God. Because God doesn't recognize that motivation. You may have the crowd applaud you and point at you and exalt you and lift you up as a paragon of virtue. You might get it. Here's the thing. That's the reward. So you better be happy with it because God's not going to give any because of the condition of your heart. If I... Give away all I have, but have not love. I gain nothing. Why? No love. No love. It's all about me, not about anybody else. And the same, you know, Paul even takes it one step further. And he brings the body into it. To the point where it's not just money that you give. He now says, here's the deal. Even if what you give is the ultimate act of sacrifice where you lay down your life even in the most extreme kind of way you offer your body to be burned I'm finishing up a book on William Tyndall sometimes called Tyndale that's how we pronounce it in the south Tyndale he pronounced it Tyndall And you know what Tyndall did? Anybody know what William Tyndall did? Translated the Bible into English. And he had to live most of his life in exile because the Catholic hierarchy in England at the time was not happy with him. They wanted the Bible to stay in Latin. You say, well, nobody spoke Latin. That's why they wanted it to stay in Latin. Because the clergy could control the communication of God's word. You come to me to know what's in that book. Because I speak Latin and you don't. And Tyndall just thought that was nuts. He wanted the, the, the guy behind the plow to be able to interchange with what God had said. So he wrote the word of God in English. It took him a while to do it and he had to live in exile hidden away in Belgium. Belgium. 
until someone that he thought was his friend, he confided in someone he believed he could trust, and the guy sold him out. And he was taken back to England. And you know what they did to him for translating the Bible into the English language? They burned him at the stake. You know, and they had different ways of doing that. Most of the time, you know, we think that they put them there. And I, <clears throat> when we were in London, I visited the Tower of London where a lot of people lost their head. And uh, we were told by um, one of the beef eaters there who give the tours. He said, now, get out of your mind that most of the time when people were burned at the stake, that they were placed on a big pyre, and then all of a sudden it just got engulfed in flames. No, it was a slow roast. They would get the embers going. It wouldn't be a big flame. They would cook a person from the legs up. Long time to burn at the stake. Sometimes if it was a windy day, the wind would come and stoke the flames, but the flames would be drawn away from the person, meaning that that person would be there and wouldn't be consumed by the flames because the wind was blowing it all around. He could be there for hours dying. It's a terrible way to die. And apparently it happened in Paul's day too, which is why he uses the metaphor. That was in the 1520s when Tyndall was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And yet Paul says, here's the deal. You can lay down your life in that kind of way. And Tyndall and many others did. And yet, as they stood before God one day, their sacrifice was recognized as acceptable to God because of the attitude of their heart in doing what they did. But Paul is saying it's even possible to give in an extreme kind of way with the wrong motive. As wild as that sounds, you can lay down your life for the wrong reason, for the wrong person, for, the, for a reason that has everything to do with you and not necessarily with the best interest of others in mind. So this is the priority of love. Bible says you can have the eloquence of a great speaker, the knowledge of a Phi Beta Kappa. You can have the faith of a miracle worker. You can have the generosity of a philanthropist. But without genuine love in your heart, it all amounts to a big fat zero in the court of heaven. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 5, he was talking about circumcision because all of them were making a big deal. You can be saved. A Gentile can be saved, but he's got to be circumcised before he can be saved. And Paul says, that's not true. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision amounts to anything. But he says there in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. So we need to remember that. This is why love is the most excellent way, why it's the greatest of these, why it stands as the priority of the Christian life. Some things are more important than others when it comes to following Christ. And this is one area you can prioritize. When it comes to God, love matters the most. And one of these days when we're standing in the presence of God at the judgment seat, God's not going to be giving out gold stars to the people who gave the most, who talked the most, or even who achieved the most in life. God's going to be most concerned about how well we loved him 
and how effectively we loved others. The Bible says nothing is more important than that because now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. Say it together with me. But the greatest of these is love. Let's live it for the glory of God.